my name is Mark Ablett and welcome to the inaugural Family Law Pod brought to you by Pump Court Chambers. Each week we'll be talking through a specialist topic such as pension sharing post WNH, special advocates in family proceedings and when and how to appoint a children's guardian. Each episode I will be joined by guests to help unravel the complexities of family law, both barristers and experts such as pensions, actuaries and accountants. In an episode coming soon, Edward Boydell of Pump Court will sit down with District Judge Hud, who sits at the Central Family Court, for an in-depth chat about how COVID-19 has affected the judiciary and the running of First Avenue House. And as if that wasn't enough, once a month we will also be releasing a focused, bite-sized guide to those unusual applications we all know about but rarely have to make, such as legal services provision, freezing injunctions, an ex parte Children Act and linked Family Law Act orders. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by Annie Ward, who was called to the bar in 1997 and is a specialist financial remedies and private children practitioner. Annie is also a qualified family finance arbitrator, which as we know in these times in particular, is a hugely important sector of ADR and one we should all be using much more often. And Annie joins me today to address the thorny issue of what to do when faced with a non-discloser. Annie, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Mark. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk about disclosure on a Friday morning. I'm sure you are dangerously excited at the prospect of being on the first Pump Court Family podcast. Well, I can hardly contain my excitement at being on the first Pump Court Family podcast, and I'm sure we're going to rush straight to the top of the uh, top 10 podcasts. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. So today we're going to be using a bit of a case study. We've got Mr. and Mrs. Gamgee, and they are sadly getting divorced. We act for Mrs. Rosie Gamgee, who was born Mrs. Rosie Cotton. Mr. Sam Gamgee is known to be wealthy, having earned significant amounts from exploits abroad in his youth. However, when provided with his for me, Mrs. Gamgee tells us that the disclosure barely scratches the surface and Mr. Gamgee's case doesn't really hold together. And that much is obvious from the documents. So it's fair to say that when, when we would pick up the brief, some of the work would already be done. We'd have, for example, a questionnaire. Yes. Now, the questionnaire is of course the first weapon in our armory in terms of disclosure and when you get to the first directions appointment you 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 probably will know very well whether or not the other side is going to be a compliant discloser or not but unfortunately the questionnaire is a hoop you've got to jump through uh, and you won't be able to persuade a district judge to do anything more draconian than simply provide that the questionnaire is answered so getting the questionnaire right is really important. And um, I'm, I'm sure you'll have discovered this as well, Mark, that the shorter a questionnaire is, the more chance it is that a judge will approve it. There's nothing a judge likes more than whittling down an overly onerous questionnaire. So the skill in a questionnaire, I think, is asking <clears throat> the right questions and not bothering to ask the wrong questions, which actually are probably not going to disclose anything that's going to help your client. Um, I, I, I can't count the number of times when a questionnaire has in fact assisted the other side by simply giving them an opportunity and a platform to flesh out what is probably a rubbish case. So always think when you're drafting a questionnaire 
is the answer going to help me or is it going to help them? And if it's actually just going to help them, don't bother asking the question would be my rule of thumb. And we need to, um, we need to bear that in mind, don't we? Because we now need to keep our questionnaires down to four pages, which mm. gets eaten up very, very quickly, actually, when you're faced with a formula of substance. It does, especially if, you, if you're dealing with a, a litigant on the other side, you maybe has two or three different companies or there's a trust or something relatively opaque that you need to ask quite a lot of questions about or, or ask for quite a lot of documents. Um, that four page barrier is, is going to provide um, quite a detriment to um, will force you to hone your questions very well. It sounds like that might be a good thing from what you were saying. Yes, I think so. Uh, I, I mean, I think increasingly, we're, we're obviously all used to the standard direction that you get a live FDA. Um, I, I suspect in the post-coronavirus world, um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if in fact there is now going to be a, a presumption that you agree your FDA directions and if you want a live FDA, that you're going to have to make an application to get in front of a judge. So that would be, um, not being that, able to agree the questionnaire is going to be one of those issues, I would have thought. Yes, yeah, so, so that would be following the procedure like that's been adopted at the CFC, for example. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and the, other, the other restriction on the questionnaire, of course, is that uh, whilst you can ask in a questionnaire for the other party to provide documents, which are in fact documents that belong to third parties, in, in respect of anything that isn't the litigant's own document, you can only ask them to use their best endeavours. So if they don't come up with it, strictly speaking, that isn't a breach. Um, so you're probably going to have to anticipate early on to what extent you might need to go beyond the questionnaire um, to attack the documents that you think are really going to make a difference. Well, let's, let's talk about that then. So, so we're at the first appointment stage. Mr and Mrs Gamgee have... Mr. Gamgee's instructed learned counsel, we're involved as well. Um, and we're before a judge because we've been lucky enough to get a live first appointment. We've got our questionnaire honed and perfectly limited to four pages. What other weapons do we have in our arsenal at this stage when we're faced with someone who we know is going to be non-compliant? I think at the first appointment it's extremely difficult because any judge is going to say, issue the questionnaire, let them try and provide replies. And it's only when there's a breach at that point that it's going to become enforceable. Up to that point, no judge is going to be issuing penal notices about a questionnaire that hasn't yet been given the date for replies, etc., etc. Uh, in relation to third parties, again, I think you do well to succeed in an application for disclosure against a third party at a first appointment. Um, okay, so unless, just, sorry, sorry. Just, to, just to stop there then and kind of think ahead, the, the, we, the first appointment we ask our questionnaire but then we get it back and it, it, it doesn't give us the answers that we want, it's still deficient and we have an FDR on the horizon either in court or private. What, what would you be suggesting we do at that stage? If it's deficient because it hasn't come up with documents that are under the control of the litigant themselves, penal notice, if you, if you want to come down hard and, and put pressure on. If it's deficient because it hasn't come up 
with documents that actually belong to third parties, then you have to think about making that separate application for the court to make orders against those third parties direct. And of course, that, that, that raises a whole host of tactical and timing questions that, that you're going to have to consider very carefully. Well, just since you, since you mentioned them, Annie, would you care to uh, share some of those tactical and timing considerations that we might need to have regard to? Well, I mean, if, if the gap between replies to questionnaire and FDR is, say, six weeks, then fitting in an application for disclosure against third parties is going to be very difficult. So you're probably going to have to delay your FDR. And that may not be acceptable to your client if, for instance, everybody's still living under the same roof at the family home or there's an issue with maintenance or whatever. So um, timing is an issue. Cost is an issue because an application against a third party, of course, the person making the application is going to be at risk on costs. So your client, who may be the financially weaker party, is, is going to have to be pretty sure that the application is A, absolutely necessary, and B, is going to succeed. Um, and the third problem is that in many cases, you're going to have to be joining as the respondent to this, a trust, a company, a bank, you know, an institution. Um, that will have no difficulty in going off to, to Clifford Chance or a, a swanky, expensive firm of solicitors to represent them. And suddenly the costs become possibly disproportionate to what it is you're trying to uncover. Um, and all of those considerations have to be very, very carefully borne in mind. I think it's very easy for you to think on behalf of your client, for instance, if you're for the wife, the husband is a piece of work, he's bad news, the judge isn't going to like him. That may be true, but third parties are, are treated very differently in matrimonial proceedings uh, and the court will very rarely make any kind of onerous order against a third party unless it's absolutely necessary. So in terms of that then, just thinking circumstances where one might succeed in getting a third party disclosure order, uh, for example, we, we don't we know that there's a bank account out there that we're not we're not getting disclosure of. Uh, how would you go about making that application against the bank? Well, so there's a there's a, a process under Part Twenty One that that are, that gives the court the jurisdiction to order disclosure from a third party. The test is pretty wide. It just has to be disclosure that's necessary in order to dispose fairly of the proceedings. And if it's something as simple as bank statements, then you would hope that the bank actually wouldn't get too awkward about it. Uh, uh, and if it's the husband that's simply being awkward in, in not providing his own statements, that he will end up picking up the tab for that kind of application. Um, what's more difficult is going to be maybe a company bank account where there are other shareholders in the company that, that may have perfectly straightforward reasons for, for confidentiality reasons for not wanting their bank statements to be disclosed um, to your client and, and and so it might be important to reassure people by agreeing to sign non-disclosure agreements to confidentiality um, agreements to try and provide the reassurance to those third parties that their sensitive commercial information isn't gonna fall into the wrong hands 
and that so that kind of NDA that would be going beyond the implied undertaking to confidentiality that we already have in in financial remedy proceedings. Well, yeah, we know about the implied undertaking, and so does the judge. But um, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar that uh, the co-director of the company or, or the other shareholder who's who's you know at arm's length isn't going to find that very reassuring, and they they want a piece of paper that with somebody's signature on it. You can blame them. Um, so we talked about third-party disclosure orders. What what other weapons do we have in terms of getting disclosure where it's not forthcoming from the individual? Well, penal notice. I mean, obviously, the, the logical conclusion of, of the penal notice, um, if if that is then followed up with a further breach, is the application to commit. And uh, while sending somebody to prison doesn't actually... Um, do anything about disclosure it it really concentrates the mind Um, and I mean in my experience it's actually very very rare that somebody will actually risk going to prison as opposed to coming up with documents so the application to commit is very effective albeit it is a very very blunt a very blunt weapon indeed of course that would be um, that would be complicated if the respondent or the, the, the non-disclosure is, is not resident in the jurisdiction. Um, yes, I mean, it's technically possible, but it, it, that would be incredibly difficult. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that you probably wouldn't bother, you, you would probably try and use other means against somebody who was resident out of the jurisdiction. Um, that would obviously depend on what jurisdiction they were resident in. Yes, and um, we see some quite quite often in, in in commercial cases the use of the the Norwich Pharmacal order. Ha- have you had any experience of that being used in in family proceedings in non disclosure situations? Well, it can be, but it's it that again is, is is a very high bar, and it puts a massive um, onus and obligation on the applying party. Uh, because they have to give this undertaking in damages that's quite a scary undertaking to give if they themselves are not in funds. And in in the kind of work we do, it is almost always the case that one party is financially much weaker than the other. Um, uh, uh, And so for for a litigant in that position to be writing a sort of blank check for damages um, that a third party might sustain is is a difficult sell in, 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 in my experience. So if you've got a client who has their own, who limited resources themselves, then you may well stop short of that. And you, and you may well say, um, if the person on the other side is being that awkward, then it is easier and cheaper simply to go down the adverse inference route than it is to actually spend the money trying to get disclosure out of corporations that are located overseas. So let's let let's talk about the adverse inferences route. Then we've had our first appointment. We've asked our questionnaire. We've had some responses, but it's not been that satisfactory. We maybe got a third-party disclosure order against a bank, um, and that gave us some bank statements. But still, we come to FDR. We're unable to properly engage uh, because we don't have full disclosure. Um, just sort of dealing with stopping there for a moment. You're at an FDR, and you don't have. Um, full disclosure have you got any views on how that should be approached do you simply say 
we're just going for directions or do you make an offer for the sake of having made an offer? Uh, yeah, that, that's uh, tactically, that's a case by case decision, isn't it? Some, some cases it'll be worth aborting an FDR, pressing ahead for more disclosure, having another FDR and then a final hearing. In some cases, if, if, if the person on the other side is absolutely willfully in breach and clearly to the court is willfully in breach, then most judges will be sympathetic simply to the idea of putting it down for a final hearing and not forcing you to go through the charade of the FDR. I mean, one thing I suppose we haven't talked about, um, which can be quite useful, is forcing the non-disclosure simply to sign letters of authority so that you can go direct against banks, corporations, etc. cetera. Uh, I mean, that can be quite useful where you are dealing with an impartial organization. It's, it's less useful when you're maybe dealing with a family trustee. But, but that is something to think about. And that is something that can be backed with a penal order. And that, um, so that can be effective. Is that, that that's a way round the third party disclosure order then, isn't it? You don't, you won't be bringing in the costs considerations from making orders against third parties. Yes, but you're giving, you're giving the organisation on the other end of it, um, the, the ability to wriggle out of it and simply decline to provide the disclosure because all you're doing is requesting you're not a court order yes um you you're, you're simply being given the the authority to ask the question so it's it's a diluted weapon but it very often works and we see it with 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 trusts as well don't we quite a lot where they effectively just decline to submit to the jurisdiction to decline to engage in proceedings mm. well trust trusts are tricky because trusts tend to be quite happy to run up legal fees um, and there is contradictory uh, law at the moment from judgments from Mr. Justice Mostyn and, and Mr. Justice Moore about the circumstances where you drag trusts in as parties, you join them so that you can make orders direct against them, um, and where you simply invite them to cooperate with the proceedings. So there, there's quite a lot of risk associated with getting disclosure out of trusts. And again, that, that's a specialist case by case kind of area. I'm sure it will come. There's no one size fits all there. Come, comes no surprise to, to anyone listening that Mr. Justice Mostyn has adopted approach in conflict with our High Court judges. <laughs> um, so let's say, fine, we've had our FDR, we haven't been able to settle. Maybe we made a, a wild offer for the sake of making an offer, but realistically, it was only ever going to final hearing. We still don't have full disclosure. What's the what's the plan at that final hearing? I mean, I, I think where you where you've got a client with limited um, funds to go chasing stuff, and if if you've got the kind of case where uh, the person on the other side, the non-discloser, he's put in a rubbish for me, he hasn't um, fessed up to, um, in fact, what he's got access to. The disclosure that he's provided doesn't show any money in the bank. Um, you know, he's running a company which has almost hit the bottom because he's suffering from the stress of the proceedings, um, as they always are. But that husband is, you know, skiing for three weeks in Verbier and he's taking the kids to the Maldives and he's driving around in the brand new Porsche and signed up to the expensive golf club. Where well, you've got a clear lifestyle evidence like that, then the adverse inference is a pretty easy tactic to deploy and, and will normally be 
successful. So all you're doing is you're saying to a judge, we haven't been able to get the disclosure to prove what this man has got. He's in breach of court orders in respect of his disclosure. So we are asking you, judge, to simply assume that he has got access to a million quid or whatever the number is that works for your case, because he's living a lifestyle that's commensurate with that. Um, and as long as you can bring a bit of evidential basis to the figure that you're putting before the court, courts are generally speaking, I think, sympathetic to that. But you do have to particularise it. You can't just say to a judge, just make a finding that there's a bottomless pit of hidden assets. You do have to try and put a number on it and you have to justify the number by something. Do we have to have a sort of an exact number or, or can we give us a, a ballpark? For example, we, you know, we know that there is a property, we think it's worth roughly X amount or are we going to be punished if we can't? Well, if, you, if you know there's a property, then you can get a drive-by valuation. Um, if you Probably know he's... <laughs> yeah, you know, but it's, it's, it, it's more, for instance, if there's a company that he's run into the ground, um, you can probably get out of company's house the accounts for five, six years ago. And you can say, well, there's no reason why that company can't return to its previous form. And so you can ascribe to the husband either the, the shareholder fund value or, or, or the income stream that he was deriving back in the day when times were good. If you've got the kind of very visible lifestyle, well, you can quantify the lifestyle. I mean, that's where our job gets vaguely close to being a little bit interesting, when we can do the Miss Marple thing of finding out how much does it cost to stay in that hotel or drive that car or rent that penthouse. You can put numbers on all that. So that's how you go around coming up with the figure that you want the judge to make a finding about. So we have, so we've got some figures, we've got some assets that we know about, assets that we don't know about. How does, how does enforcement come into play? And I ask that because we're all aware of the AAZ case, which has now been named, but I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to try to. Uh, and we know that she is experiencing huge difficulties in actually getting the money that, that was ordered to be paid to her. Yeah, well... That's always going to be the case, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, yes, if there's a, a property within the jurisdiction, fine, that's easy. You know, you get your lump sum order. You're obviously never, against somebody like that, you're never, ever going to bother asking for a maintenance order. So you're going to go for a capitalised maintenance so that you're just seeking one lump sum out of the guy or a transfer of one property. And if you've got an asset in the UK that you can secure that against, then that Although, she, although your client will have to go through the enforcement process, at least at the end of it, she should get what she is due. Assets outside the jurisdiction, very difficult. Company shares, very difficult. You know, there, there, there are, of course, cases where um, non-disclosers and uh, non-compliant litigants can go on for years and years. I mean, poor old Mr. Hart, in prison at the age of 82 or whatever, because he simply wouldn't play ball with the court's order. So, yeah, it, it may be difficult. There is no quick fix to that. I think we have, we have limited sympathy for Mr Hart because of his, uh, his, his stubbornness. But that's that, I think enforcement and the details of that is probably a topic for another day. Um, so just thank you very much for that, Annie. It's been really interesting to, to talk through that. Um, 
I do want to add before we end that one aspect of non-disclosure is also receiving documents that aren't completely truthful. And in this age of paperless working, there are numerous computer programs that will allow you to edit PDFs, and it is something we all need to be alive to. Luckily, Pump Court is to the rescue. And on the 2nd of July, 2020, Helen Brander of Pump Court sat down with District Judge Devlin, formerly of Slough and now of Oxford, to talk through this very issue. And that discussion is available as a webinar on our YouTube channel, and I would encourage you to look at that. So Annie, thank you very much for joining. Thank you all for listening. I hope you've found the podcast both useful and interesting. We do aim to please. Do let us know if you have any feedback. Please give us a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And if you would like to get in touch, for example, with any topics you'd like us to cover, please do not hesitate to do so. My email is mformark.ablett at pumpcourtchambers.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye.